Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you so much for listening or watching right now, wherever you are in the world. I'm Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Today on the show, I have Dr. Jeffrey D. Long. After the death of his father, Dr. Long began what became a lifelong spiritual quest into the nature of life, death, rebirth, and consciousness. Dr. Jeffrey Long is a leading authority in religious pluralism, the many paths to ultimate truth and realization of our oneness. Dr. Long is a professor of religion and Asian studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. Dr. Long is the author of four books, including A Vision for Hinduism, Jainism, An Introduction to the Historical Dictionary of Hinduism, and most recently, Hinduism in America, A Convergence of Worlds. In 2018, Dr. Long received the Hindu American Foundation Dharma Seva Award for his work to promote accurate and sensitive portrayals of Hindu traditions in the American education system and media. He has spoken at conferences in India, which His Holiness the Dalai Lama has also talked. Dr. Long has given talks at prestigious venues around the world, including Princeton University, Yale University, the University of Chicago, and three presentations in 2019 at the United Nations headquarters in New York. This is his story and this is his passion. Jeffrey, welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you very much. Thank you for welcoming me today. I'm really honored that you're on the show and I can't wait to dive into these subjects and I've got so many things to discuss with you. I'd love to start first just a bit of a background about you and um, a complete change of religion and your spiritual journey um, that led you to where you are today. Okay, very good. So I, I started out, uh, grew up in a small town in Missouri, uh, here in the US, uh, very small rural community um, and a pretty conservative community. Uh, I was the only child of uh, my parents. And uh, as I was growing up, I was always just you know, curious about everything, but I was especially interested in sort of big questions, you know, like where, where did we all come from? Why are we here? And uh, read a lot about science growing up. I've always loved science fiction and sort of, you know, ideas that, that open the mind to different possibilities. Uh, when I was uh, 11 years old, just about to turn 11, in fact, my father was in a really very bad accident. This ultimately led to his death. In fact, he ended up taking his own life because of the suffering he was experiencing in his body. His, his body became like a prison to him. And so he, he passed away in 2000, or no, 1981, when I was 12, um, and uh, I almost said 2012. Uh, when I was 12 years old, he passed away. And uh, this really pushed me even more uh, into a kind of path of, of journeying and exploring and asking questions. And uh, I was, uh, again, I was already sort of philosophically minded, but I began thinking an awful lot about uh, the afterlife, what happens after we die, if anything. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Uh, if there is such a thing as God, why does God allow or permit or cause uh, these things to happen? And just you know, sort of delving into these big philosophical questions, 
questions. And uh, I grew up in the Catholic faith and uh, I wasn't uh, rebellious as such. I was actually pretty devout growing up, but uh, there were certain things from, from the Christian tradition that I found very comforting and very helpful and very profound. And there were other areas where I felt it was a little limited. And so I thought it was important to expand my search, expand my horizons as much as I could. So I began reading everything I could find about world religions. And uh, the tradition that really kept attracting me was the Hindu tradition. And a couple of things about Hinduism. Uh, first, I would say on, on sort of the rational side, mm -hmm. uh, there are things in Hindu philosophy, what we call Vedanta, which just makes sense. Uh, there's a certain logic to it uh, that I found very attractive. It, it's, uh, you could almost say it's a scientific uh, worldview, but uh, a scientific spirituality, right? Not, not the kind of mechanistic uh, scientific view, but uh, very rational. Everything has a place, everything connects. And that drew me. And then on, I would say, the non-rational side, there's just the aesthetic of the whole thing. It's a very beautiful tradition. Uh, the imagery, the music, you know, everything about it, uh, I, I find uh, uh, on the aesthetic side, you know, very, very appealing. So I felt very drawn to that. And my exposure to it was through popular culture. You know, like I said, I was growing up in a small town in Missouri. We didn't have a big population of people from India or from anywhere else around the world. There was one Indian family that I got to know very well before I graduated from high school. Uh, but um, what I found was uh, I, I love the Beatles. And so, you know, the music of George Harrison, um, he was very drawn to India and to Hindu ideas and practices. And uh, I saw the film Gandhi when it came out, Richard Attenborough's film Gandhi, beautiful mm -hmm. film, uh, and began reading everything I could find about Gandhi. And the sort of culminating moment, I think, of this uh, sort of search um, early on in my life was uh, just a couple of years after my father had passed away. Uh, I had already begun reading about Gandhi and reading a few things about spirituality. And I kept seeing references to this text called the Bhagavad Gita. And it was referred to so frequently, I thought this must be a really important text. I'd like to find it. But it was not something that was readily available in my small town. And uh, I went one day with my grandmother to uh, a, a sale. There was this, uh, we, in America, we called a flea market. People were selling all their old stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, this was in a church parking lot, actually, uh, the Methodist church parking lot. And I went with my grandmother to help her out, you know, selling things and also to see if I could find any old science fiction paperbacks or comic books, because you could find those treasures at, uh, at this kind of event. And I started looking around and I, there was a table that had a lot of books and magazines on it. I thought it looked promising. And what I didn't expect was what happened. Uh, there was the Bhagavad Gita. It was like sitting right on top Amazing. of that pile of books. It was like it was waiting for me, you know, and I opened it and I started reading and and everything I found in it sort of fit with the thought process I was already involved with. Uh, the um, big theme of my journey has been the, the idea of rebirth, sometimes called reincarnation or transmigration. And this idea really appealed to me. And it's, there are things about it that I thought just made a lot of sense. And uh, this was not an effect of having studied Hinduism or Buddhism or any tradition where that's affirmed. I was just kind of working out ideas in my mind. And uh, when I opened the, the Bhagavad Gita, it was a an illustrated version. It was actually the one uh, that is uh, produced by ISKCON, the, the Hare Krishnas, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And uh, I opened the first page I opened it to, there was this illustration of a man who had died and he's surrounded by his family and they're all in mourning. 
and from a distance, there is a wise sage who's sort of looking at them all very serenely and compassionately. And he can see God in the hearts of each one of them. And at the bottom, it, it, there is a verse. It said, uh, the wise lament neither the living nor the dead. And it gave a page number. So I quickly looked it up and I found the classic sort of Hindu account of reincarnation. Uh, the character of the Lord Krishna says, uh, in that text, uh, there was never a time when you and I did not exist, nor will there be any time when we will cease to be. And then he compares the, the movement of the soul from body to body like changing clothes, right? We, he said, just as someone casts off old worn out clothes and puts on new clothes, in the same way, the soul casts off the body when it no longer functions, takes on a new one. And this was the same sort of thought process that I was having. And here it was in this ancient text from another country and another culture. And uh, I sometimes tell people finding the Bhagavad Gita was like, uh, it was like being an extraterrestrial who's been raised by human beings and then finding an artifact from your home planet. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I felt. It's like, ah, this makes sense. This made more sense than anything else. And so from that point on, uh, my life has just become a series of um, explorations and delving into ideas, beliefs, practices, uh, and uh, eventually, yes, like you said, to where I am now. I'm a member of the Vedanta Society in America, um, involved in the wider Hindu community also in the U.S., and uh, I, I married into the tradition. My wife grew up uh, Hindu. She's uh, uh, from India, and I've spent a lot of time in India. I lived there for a couple of years, and in my education, I studied religion and philosophy. I went to University of Chicago. It was really recommended to me as the best place to go. And I've been very fortunate. I, I think it would be appropriate to say I feel, I feel blessed uh, that I have a career that involves speaking and writing about these wonderful things that have really transformed my life in a very positive way. And I hope they can do the same for other people as well. It's just amazing that you um, were so curious at that age and had this calling and, and, and synchronicities that may have it led you on this path. And we said before that you're, you're following your passions and you're living your passions, which is remarkable. What a I wonderful, to, what a wonderful uh, wrote, uh, journey. About me, a student who said, I've never met anyone who was so passionate about being dispassionate. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Do you mind explaining to the audience what Vedanta means? Sure, sure, sure. Vedanta has multiple meanings. Uh, in the most sort of basic sense, it's a school of Hindu philosophy. It's actually several schools of thought that go mm -hmm. under the, the heading of Vedanta. The word Vedanta in Sanskrit goes back to Veda, which many people may know that's the name given to the Hindu scriptures, the ancient Hindu texts. But the word itself means wisdom. And the Vedanta, originally it referred to the end of the Veda, the last part of the Veda to be written. It's a group of texts called the Upanishads, and that's where the core teachings of Vedanta philosophy are found. And uh, Vedanta has a sort of double meaning because those are the last part of the Veda to be written, but it also means the end or aim of all wisdom. So the idea is that all knowledge is, is Veda, and it's leading us to a deeper understanding of, of who and what we really are and the freedom that comes from that realization. So Vedanta is basically a path of, of self-discovery, self-inquiry. Uh, you can learn it through the texts. 
but you can also learn the insights of Vedanta just from reasoning, reasoning about it on your own. And uh, in fact, this is one reason the Bhagavad Gita resonated with me so much is that I thought, you know, I've already been thinking these thoughts and yet here they are in this, in this text. And then the other path that people follow is the experiential path. Someone might find a teacher uh, who is very wise and enlightened, who w will pass on to them some, some experience that uh, enables them to, to have a, a great insight. And I've, I've tapped into all three of these uh, in, in my lifetime. I've been inspired by books. I've thought about things a lot and I've had experiences through, through the practice of meditation and just being open uh, to what was available to me. And it's, it's all sort of converged uh, in this particular direction. We're talking about very big topics here in a condensed <laughs> period of time. What, I mean, you're an expert on religious pluralism. What do you mind just defining that in, in the concept of the time that we have now? Sure. No, absolutely. No, I, I think it's, a, it's a, besides reincarnation, this is the other idea that I've really focused on a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, even more than reincarnation, most of my writing as a scholar has been on this topic. Uh, so religious pluralism is a term that philosophers of religion use to refer to not only the fact that there are many religions, and in fact, we don't even have to res restrict it to religions, many worldviews, many belief systems and ways of thinking. So it can really encompass everything. And pluralism is the idea that not only are there many of these, but that that's a good thing. It's a thing to be celebrated. Um, very often we fear diversity. If we believe something and we encounter someone who believes something different, we're concerned. You know, we, we think that shakes up uh, our certainty about what we believe. So people often will put up barriers to uh, understanding others. They say, well, that's, that's wrong, that's false, that's you know, the work of the devil, or you know, whatever people might say to sort of you know, keep it away. Uh, and uh, you have a sort of, that, that's usually called exclusivism. And uh, I encountered that uh, when I was growing up uh, in Missouri. There were, I grew up Catholic and in the small town where I lived, uh, there's a very sort of conservative, mainly evangelical Protestant uh, community. Wonderful, wonderful people. I mean, they would, they would do anything for you. In their belief though, uh, only they are going to heaven, right? Everyone else is damned forever. So not only people of other religions outside Christianity, but Catholics too. So, you know, I was, I was told I was going to hell several times by people when I was growing up. And then when they found out I was a weird Catholic who was into Hinduism and reincarnation, then they knew I was going to hell. Right? They were, <laughs> you know, sure that, you, right? yeah, there's something wrong with this person. But for me, pluralism actually is very consistent with Many religions, if you take Christianity, you know, Christianity's fundamental teaching is that God is love, right? God loves us so much that according to Christian teaching, God takes human form and actually dies for humanity, right? That's the ultimate act of love. Uh, it didn't seem logical to me that a God of love would create billions of people and send most of them to hell because they weren't born in the right place and time to be in the right church, right? That just mm -hmm. didn't make sense at all. So pluralism, to me, it sort of makes spirituality more like science. There are certain eternal truths, and they're, of, they're available to people of all times and cultures because they're the truths of our very being. So just as people in different cultures and different places have discovered mathematics 
and gravity and you know like certain basic scientific principles these are things we all observe and experience so if you think about it enough you can come up with some of the same conclusions the idea is the life of the spirit is is akin to that that they're also spiritual truths that we are capable of uncovering uh, for example you know i've already mentioned my belief in rebirth well if that's really true then we're all being reborn and uh, somebody somewhere should remember it or have there, there should be some evidence of it. And sure enough, if you look around, there, there are accounts. They're not all necessarily equally credible, but there are accounts from all cultures and all religions of people who claim to remember things from other lifetimes. Um, and, you know, there, there's a certain logic to these things which you can arrive at. And uh, one of the books that I really loved that I read early on in my journey was The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley who was also a student of Vedanta. I didn't know that at the time, but he was. And uh, his basic idea in the perennial philosophy is there's a universal truth that can be found in every religion and every society and in every period of history. And the book is just packed with quotes from uh, Taoists, Muslims, Hindus, Catholics, Quakers, uh, you know, Jews, uh, Buddhists, uh, you know, all over the world. Uh, affirming many of the same core truths about the nature of self and how we should live and treat one another and, and our relationship with, with the infinite. And of course there are differences among religions too. And the other part of pluralism is you don't only affirm the, the areas where religions are the same, but they're also distinctive insights that each one has. And Swami Vivekananda, who's someone I follow quite a lot, he, he actually started the Vedanta Society in America in 1894, first Hindu sage to come to the US and sort of spread these teachings in the West. He said, the religions are not contradictory, they're complementary. And he says, if you look at the heart of each tradition, there's one great idea that is its core. So like with Christianity, it's love. Uh, with Islam, it's brotherhood and equality. Mm -hmm. Um, with Hinduism, it's oneness, right? With Buddhism, it's the impermanence of the material world. These are not incompatible ideas. You could incorporate all of them into a sort of a meta view of reality. And so pluralism promotes uh, dialogue and uh, greater understanding where we all come from our particular perspectives and backgrounds and share knowledge and see if we can integrate it in some way. It's a great concept and that the, the, there's many paths to oneness really um yes. I, I like that you spoke when you were looking at the bhagavan gita before um krishna explained that reincarnation is basically like changing clothes that uh, i'm going to ask you the question what why reincarnation and why do we keep coming back and why are we here more big wow. questions for you <laughs> great, great questions so first of all why reincarnation because you know growing up in western culture there are two dominant ideas about what happens after we die. There's the religious model coming from Christianity, which basically says you, you either have heaven or hell, right? You're, you're saved, hopefully, or you're not. And then you have this eternity of either joy or suffering. And then there's the more secular view that you just die and that's it. You know, we are the body, the body stops working, no more you, right? So those are the two dominant views. And I grew up with you know, hearing both of those as well. Me too. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and in the Catholic Church, there is a little bit of a third view, which is there's something called purgatory, right? Wherein, uh, you know, if you are basically in a state of grace, right, you're on the path to, to salvation, but you still have some issues to work out, right? There's still some, some imperfection there. 
there's this state between death and heaven where you, you know, there's a purgation. That's why I call it purgatory. You're purged of your imperfections. And then you enter into the, the divine presence. And uh, I remember after my father had died, and like I mentioned, he'd taken his own life, which I don't think is a sin. I mean, I think he was freeing himself from the prison his body had become. He was really, really miserable. Um, but when I, when, I think about, uh, when I think about him very sincerely, uh, I, I know that he was, he was good, he was loving, he was kind. He also had imperfections, as we all do. And, uh, you know, he could be temperamental and, you know, the, everyone has, you know, certain, certain issues. So I remember thinking, you know, he must be going through that process now, right? The purgatory and then finally, and though he had been through so much suffering already in his life, I, I don't think he had much more that he had to go through. But I remember thinking, if we die and we still have this extra work to do, then what were we doing here, right? What was the point of this life? And as I thought about it more, I thought maybe we're kind of already in purgatory and maybe we just keep coming back until we finally achieve that ideal that we're all striving for. And then you go on to, to heaven, right? You go on to the next stage. So I was thinking about rebirth before I'd even studied Hinduism. I was, I was thinking from a Catholic perspective, it just sort of made more sense to me that we just kind of keep coming back until we make it. And there were people in ancient times in the church that believed in this, right? Their reincarnation was not a, uh, an unknown view in the, uh, in the ancient Mediterranean world. So um, I was very drawn to that. And then when I started reading the Gita, I thought, oh, this makes perfect sense. And you say, why reincarnation? You know, like why I was telling you, like why, why I like this option? Well, um, on the one hand, in terms of the eternal heaven and hell idea, it seems to me unfair both ways, right? If you uh, still, you know, if someone could, could be a genocidal murderer and then repent on their deathbed and go to heaven, I mean, that seems like, you know, something has been missed there, right? They, they have to atone for something somewhere. On the other hand, the idea of eternal damnation didn't make sense to me either. I'm just thinking as a child, you know, if, if I was ever punished by my parents, it was because they wanted me to learn and become better and not make the same mistake again. But if you're just being punished eternally with no end, there, there's no end goal to that, right? It's just, it seems yeah. completely wasteful and irrational to me. So uh, you know, that option seemed to me you know, like the sort of eternal afterlife. I, I found it, 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 was, uh, it, it didn't seem fair either way. Uh, and the idea that we're just this body, uh, I know there are people who find that attractive, you know, if they're skeptical about any kind of afterlife or, or that sort of thing. But uh, the philosopher John Hick, I think, said it very well. John Hick is a philosopher of religion who called this view bad news for the many, right? The vast majority of human beings uh, through history have suffered a great deal. Uh, they've been subject to diseases and oppression and wars. And if there's nothing more for them to look forward to, it, it, it's, it's just an awfully cold and unfair universe. Now, maybe we live in a cold and unfair universe, but it seems to me that the evidence is not so overwhelming that there cannot be an afterlife that we're forced to that conclusion. In other words, uh, I think that we have, uh, uh, to again quote uh, Hick, uh, the, the right to believe, right? The right to say that, you know, no, as long as it's not been sort of absolutely refuted by science or by our other knowledge, uh, it's certainly possible to say that, uh, you know, there are, there are things about us that science does not yet know, uh, and there are insights from sages around the world saying, yes, there's a soul. Yes, we are not just this body. And then we have our own just 
personal sense of that, right? I, I, I have had, I, I don't claim to have vivid past life memories, but I have this feeling of being more than just this and more than just what this life accounts for. I had this sense of connection that, that goes back much further. And so with all of that, I just, the, the idea of, of rebirth seemed to me to be the best of both worlds, right? It seemed to, you know, uh, to be scientific in a sort of very broad sense of the, of the word, uh, you know, rational, logical, because what you experience is the result of whatever you yourself have done or chosen, right? what we call karma. Uh, and uh, that uh, at the same time, you have these sort of endless, uh, potentially limitless second chances to improve and become better. So uh, I think it's a very, I find it a very inspirational way of thinking. So I'm drawn to that. Now there's another sort of version of the question of why reincarnation is, you know, within the worldview that I'm describing, why, why reincarnation at all, right? Why is this happening? And this is really kind of a, another way of asking the question of why is there a universe at all? Why are we here? Why are we here? Why did the infinite one that the scriptures tell us is infinite being consciousness and bliss, why did it become this universe of limited beings like ourselves? And uh, there are many answers to this question. I think there, there's no single answer uh, that one finds. Uh, the answer that I'm most attracted to is the idea that in order for the infinite to really be that infinite and perfect being that it is, it had to experience imperfection, right? That learning something new for the first time, for example, is a more joyful experience than if you just always knew it, right? We, we, if we experience things forever and ever, we sort of take them for granted. So to, in a way, almost deliberately forget itself and come into this world and having to learn all of it anew is, is a way of really uh, experiencing what reality is in its true fullness so that it could truly be an infinite bliss and not a more limited one. In other words, for infinite bliss, you need to experience finitude and suffering and death and disappointment and all of these things that we, so they're all necessary, but they're steps toward realizing who and what we really are. And so this is how I understand. There are other answers that are given sometimes in the traditions. In Hinduism, they'll sometimes say that uh, this is God's lila, right? God is sort of playing, just enjoying being all these many beings. I think that's valid. Um, another answer that I really like that a, a, a nun in the Vedanta tradition uh, once uh, said, uh, I heard her say to someone, uh, someone asked, you know, why did, why did the infinite become this world? And she said, well, practice very diligently and meditate, and you will know why you became this world, right? Because we are ourselves the infinite, it is within us. And so it was an encouragement to, you know, go back and practice and uh, uh, delve into the path and find out the answer for, for ourselves. So I, I think there's there's some truth to all of those. Yes, but and also what I'm hearing is that you know we so think that we're individual consciousnesses, but we're doing it as a collective consciousness. We are all one and having all these experiences in some capacity. We think of ourselves, or I do as well, as sometimes as an individual. I'm experiencing this, and I can't really reach enlightenment, but it's for the collective. That's right. That's right. And we and both experiences are necessary because we need to know what it's like to be an individual to then uh, know why we need the whole, right? To the, why we need the rest. And uh, there's a beautiful saying, actually, or it, this was uh, one of my sort of heroes early on in my journey, Carl Sagan, uh, who was quite a skeptic about religion, but I think he was a deeply spiritual human being. 
And uh, he said, we are a way for the cosmos to know itself, right? That, that it's through our experiences that the universal reality is experiencing. Now he was thinking sort of in terms of evolution and you know, that the cosmos has evolved conscious beings like ourselves. But from a Vedantic perspective, it's also true that that, that, that one original consciousness is experiencing through and as all of us, as this vast reality. And the more vast we discover the universe is, the more I find this worldview compelling because it really is infinite. I mean, if you think of how many worlds like ours there could be, you know, as Carl Sagan said, billions and billions, and it's more like trillions and trillions and, and even more. And then yet how many different kinds of beings there are just on this planet. And I, I saw a piece on television yesterday about the duck-billed platypus. And uh, I said to my wife, I said, you know, think about how uh, the, the diverse creatures we have on earth. There's a duck-billed platypus, there's us, there's, you know, coral, right? There are all of these living yeah. things. And think about if you expand that to include the whole universe, the many kinds of life there must be. And so you could see this whole cosmos is really just being the expression of the joy of that infinite being to then become all of this and experience it. You definitely did touch on this, but I get asked this question all the time. So I'd just like to really pinpoint it. I get this question, why do we come back to suffer? Right. And then I guess I, the question also is, is suffering a state of mind or is it karma? There are probably three questions, <laughs> a huge question. Yeah, but... huge question. Why do we suffer and why do we come back to suffer? So I had, a, I had an, an interesting experience with this just a few months ago. Well, actually, it's now it's almost been a year ago. Uh, I was at a conference in San Diego, beautiful city. It was sunny. It was nice. I was on my way to give a talk and I slipped on some grass and I fell and I broke my leg or it was my ankle actually. So I broke my, my foot was sticking off 90 degrees from oh, how gosh. it's supposed to be. Yeah, it was very unpleasant. Sorry. So I was lying on the ground. Yeah, thank you. I was lying on the ground and I, I uh, used my cell phone to call for the ambulance. The ambulance came and it was painful, but I was glad that if I had to have this experience, it was after I've been practicing Vedanta for a number of years and practicing meditation. So I was able to tune the pain out to a great extent. I sort of visualized that the pain was happening in a distant star system somewhere far away. And I was just observing it through a telescope. Right? I sort of just mentally distanced myself from it and uh, went to the hospital. And I also remember thinking, you know, oh, I could lament, you know, the fact that I'm missing my panel and, you know, I'm now I'm wasting time here in the hospital and is this going to cost money? And I realized worrying about all of that was not going to actually help. And so while I was in the emergency room, uh, a number of the nurses and staff commented on how cheerful I was because here I was with my foot sticking out the wrong way and uh, you know, in quite a lot of physical pain. And they just said, you know, how, how are you managing to maintain this? And I said, uh, and this just popped into my mind. I said, pain is in the body, but suffering is in the mind. And you can choose how you're going to react to the situations in That's life. That's a great I, way to put it. I love, I love that phrase. Yeah. Well, that's very kind of you to say, because it, to me, it, it was a very empowering thing to know that I had the ability to choose how I was going to respond to my circumstances. So, and people sometimes think the spiritual life is going to take away all of life's difficulties, but it really doesn't. It makes it easier to deal with them, right? It makes it easier. To, it gives you a narrative. If you can think of it as, okay, I probably fell and broke my ankle because I wasn't being mindful. I was thinking about too many things at the same time. And maybe this was from some choice I made either earlier in this life or in another life. Maybe I caused pain or harm to someone. Now I'm experiencing it. Because right? the universe sort of 
prompts us to experience empathy. We, we feel whatever we have caused others to feel. And I think that the reason we come back and keep experiencing this is because it helps us learn lessons. We learn to detach from that which is painful and look at it more objectively. And then also to be more compassionate to others who are experiencing that suffering because we know what it's like and we can show them the comfort that we would like to feel if we were feeling that. And all of these are ways in which you could say the universe is sort of teaching itself its own oneness, right? That if, if we learn to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves, then we're perceiving the true nature of reality, right? We are actually this one interconnected organic being. And so the way to live in light of that is with empathy, with compassion, and uh, we have to learn the lesson. And we don't, I think one lifetime is just not enough time to get it right. Um, and so, uh, and, and my personal belief about this is that we choose to come back, right? That this is not forced upon us. We, you, you think in terms of karma, right? a nice literal translation of the word karma is work, right? It's, it's the work we have to do in life. And uh, I think that after we die, there's some period, uh, many traditions talk about of, kind of a like a rest period where you're assimilating whatever you learned from that lifetime and then it's like okay time to go back to work and we want to do that work right and, and you know if you think about the kind of work we do in our jobs from day to day uh sometimes we get tired of it and we you know we want to rest from it but then after a while i mean if you like your job if it's something you feel that you're on earth to do uh, you want to get back to it it's like yeah it's time it's just like at the end of the summer it's like it's time to get back in the classroom again and I, I'm, I'm missing something. Yeah. So I think that that pulls us back into this, this world and into a body and into a time and a circumstance that's best suited for whatever we need to learn. And, and I think it's important to be non-judgmental about this. So there's a tendency, even within the traditions that talk about these things very wisely, there's a tendency to put things in terms of good and bad, right? There's a good rebirth or a bad rebirth. If you've done something bad, you're born in a bad form. You know, you're good, you're in a good form. But I think they're all in a way good. They're all there to teach us something. And the Buddha actually said very wisely, he said, don't judge anyone based on their karma. You don't know what their karma is. He said, karma is mysterious. So someone who may be appearing to suffer a lot might actually be a very advanced soul who is there to evoke compassion from the rest of us and teach the rest of us something. And then you have people who are on the top of the world and they have a lot of money and they can do whatever they want and they're miserable. And you know, they even yes. take their lives, right? They, they even want to end it because they're so unhappy. And so uh, discovering that happiness is just the joy of being. It doesn't come from something. This, I think this is really the lesson. This is the hard lesson because we're used to pursuing happiness as though it were an object but we we are happiness according to these truths that the nature of the soul is bliss so it's a matter of just kind of setting everything else aside from time to time i do it on a daily basis sit and meditate and just be and it's it's very beautiful i i i teach students to meditate i don't do it in the classroom because i think that's not the right place for it students are there to study and earn a grade and you know they don't necessarily want to get some spiritual teaching. But a lot of students who take, take my classes are interested in this, so I'll, I'll offer it outside of class. And so we meet in the library usually, and I lead a meditation once a month. In fact, I've got one today uh, itself. Um, and uh, I teach students who are interested, and I ask them afterward what their experience was like. And I remember one guy said he felt happy but weird 
after meditating. And I really liked that way of putting it. As we kind of unpacked it, it, what he was trying to say was it was a happiness that was not caused by something. You know, like if you're yes. in a good mood and you're smiling, someone will see you and they say, oh, why are you so happy? And they'll expect you to say, oh, I just got some good news or it's a beautiful day or something. But that we can just be happy, that being is happiness, uh, is it's different from how we're used to thinking. It is a different, it's, yeah. it is a different way of thinking, but a lot of people don't remember the tools of how to be happy. How, how does, how does one who's suffering or um, has some negative patternings, I wouldn't say negative, some patternings of behavior, how do they right. get happy? Right, right. Well, this is really a good question. And I'm going to approach it from two directions. First, when, when we encounter someone else who is in that situation, uh, I've discovered this the hard way, uh, just telling them, oh, this is the philosophy you should follow and, you know, meditate. And so that does not help. In fact, that can blow it's up. Annoying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's annoying. It's really annoying because uh, what, what you're trying maybe to say, uh, hopefully trying to say is, you know, I care for you and this is what works for me and maybe it will work for you. But what they probably hear is, oh, I'm happy. What's wrong with you that you're not happy? Here, here's how to be happy, right? And so that's, that's just, that doesn't work. So I found that when I encounter others who are in that situation, the best thing is just to be, I call it being present to them. Listen, hear them out and show some empathy. Like when, you know, if, if they're complaining about something and if you've had a similar experience, like, oh yeah, you know, I, I, oh, I had, I had an encounter with that guy too. Oh, he's terrible. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, just sort of be with them and show compassion that way. And then they, they often will, will feel better. But I think if they ask you for guidance or, and this is the kind of the second part, for ourselves when we're looking for, for happiness, I think that's where these kinds of practices and philosophies can be extremely helpful. Uh, that we don't use it to sort of judge others or rank ourselves in relation to other people, but that we just use it to work on ourselves constantly, right? What pattern of thought am I following now that is making me feel this way and what led to it? So uh, there's a lot you can find. I, I think uh, I, I talk a lot about Vedanta. That's sort of my, I think of as my home philosophy. But Vedanta is very pluralistic. You know, we draw from everything. So another tradition that I find a very rich source is, is Buddhism, because uh, Buddhism is the practices, but without sort of a lot of the metaphysical worldview. It's like, you know, breathe, be mindful, be present. And I think a lot of that is extremely helpful. And uh, I think people are picking up on it, even who are not practicing Buddhists, but they're picking up on mindfulness and meditation just because it, it works, right? This is sort of what I mean when yeah. I say these things are scientific, you, you can try them out. And so breathing, putting focus on the breath and then withdrawing attention from whatever it is that's troubling you. And then as thoughts arise, just watch them, right? Don't pursue them, but just watch them arise. And you'll gradually see the pattern of what makes you, you know, as, as people say, pushes your buttons, right? You sort of see where all the buttons are and why are they there and what led to that. And then you can start undoing all of that and, and redoing it in a way that you want it to be. I, I think if I had broken my foot, you know, 20 years ago, I would not have been the cheerful person in the, in the emergency room that I was one year ago, because this all takes practice, it takes lots and lots of practice and constant work. 
and you know you could i can give a talk on these things and and you know we can have a wonderful conversation and then i go and get in my car and someone pulls in front of me and i'm angry and you know it's like right back into the old materialistic mindset so you just have to constantly remind ourselves you know what we're here for is finding that deeper harmony and oneness and, and connection and that's so true what i found as well i mean we live in an instantaneous world i want generally want everything straight away as well but it is it is practice you know it's it's a way of being and doing that practice mm -hmm. and it does take time and i love what you said about happiness it's not an external thing you can achieve it's not a career it's not it's not a, not a goal it just is a way of being i think that was um mm -hmm. such a beautiful way to put it i'd also like to talk just briefly on um your idea of i, I have heard you speak about this relationships or marriage Hmm, hmm, hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to be married to uh, someone who shares a lot of my way of thinking. Uh, we're, that we're helps. Very <laughs> yeah, no, it helps a lot. I, and I think your, your partner in life, uh, you want to be, you know, someone who at, at the very least respects your values. Um, but uh, when you can actually help and support each other in your path, uh, I think of that as, as sort of like an ideal situation. So it's, of course, everyone's different and everyone's situation is going to be different. But um, I think of, of, we have this term in the Hindu tradition, sadhana, means spiritual practice. And when people think of sadhana, they think of things like meditation and mindfulness and the sort of things we've been talking about. But there are also whole ways of life that are sadhana. And we often think of our monks uh, in the uh, Vedanta tradition, monks and nuns, right? That's, I'm using the terminology from the Catholic church, but sannyasis, right? Renouncers. And think, okay, that's a sadhana, right? That they're celibate, they're not married, they don't have children, and they're single-mindedly focused on their, on their spiritual work, and uh, and on helping others, which is part of their spiritual work. And when you're married, though, I think that is also a kind of sadhana, because when you're together with another person, you are kind of. Um, I, I have this picture in my mind of like you've got two rocks, and they're sort of bouncing off each other. And gradually they become very smooth from all of that bouncing off each other. Right? You sort of wear off each other's hard edges because you learn how to adapt to another person and what another person wants and what another person thinks and feels. And we've both had the experience, my wife and I, of uh, you know, um, realizing because it's pointed out by, by the other person, I point it out to her, she points it out to me, that we may be doing something that we're completely unaware of that might be actually not helpful or not, not good, right? For other people or, or even for ourselves. And uh, we sort of, you know, we learn how to adapt and, and be with the other person. And it's, uh, and of course, what makes that work is if, you know, you really love the other person and you really much rather be with them than, than with no one or with anyone else, uh, then you say, okay, so if, if I want that to be, then I need to also adapt to certain things, right? Because there's certain things about me, there's certain things about her that are just basic to who we are, right? There's just, you know, we wouldn't be us without those things. And so, you know, like, you know, if, if she didn't like the Beatles, right, this would be a very difficult life for her because I just like have that music playing, you know, 
a lot you know? and uh you know uh and we, we just we have we have ways we've adapted to one another and we learn from each other we teach each other and because she's from india I and mean, she's taught me a tremendous amount about the culture that produced this wonderful philosophy that i'm so drawn to and she also teaches japanese and so she's taught me a whole lot about japanese culture which is yet another uh culture that taps deeply into buddhism into this sort of very profound kind of dharmic philosophy you know you, you you if you spend any time in japan you'll notice even small things like how people conduct themselves on a subway you know and a subway can be so crowded and it can be you know a very uncomfortable situation but people intuitively make way for other people and there's this sense of being attuned to and sensitive to the other and uh in the u.s we have to learn that because uh, it's you know we're much more individualistic and we tend to have a lot more space and so people take up a lot of space and you know the way they move about and so on and there's nothing wrong with that except uh the way the japanese do it sort of teaches you to be attentive to the other person and i think marriage is kind of like that as well it's it is a kind of spiritual path um that that helps you uh kind of work on yourself and uh you know, become the kind of being you want to be because you want to be the kind of being that is lovable to that other person, right? So uh, I, I think uh, that's a big part. Of and of course, you know, yeah, you have to already love the other person to even, you know, start the, the relationship. But uh, none of us are exactly identical. So, you know, we all find, you know, we learn new things about uh, ourselves and each other all the time. We've been together now for 26 years. And, Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Our 25th anniversary, uh, the party we were going to have got shut down by COVID-19. So uh, we're going we're, we're gonna to have to have a 26th wedding anniversary. So, uh, um, and we, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, because we're on the, also on the same kind of path, uh, we're able to support each other. We, we meditate together. We, you know, remind each other, you know, have you done your meditation today? Because we can't always do it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, just all kinds of small, large and small ways that we support each other. And I think uh, having a partner to, to help you with that and, and to also be doing the same for them is just really very, very precious. I, I just, I, I don't know what I do uh, otherwise. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing your relationship tips. That was, that was really, really lovely. <laughs> um, I've asked all the questions now. Is there something you'd like to share with the Passion Harvest audience? Well, um, I would say, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Well, I'm a professor. I could talk forever. So um, <laughs> one thing is, you know, I've talked a lot about Vedanta and Hinduism. And, you know, this is a tradition I identify with. Uh, at the same time, a really central part of that is pluralism. Right? So uh, I would not want any of the viewers to think I'm here to sort of uh, push Vedanta, right, in any kind of aggressive way. Uh, I think that you can find fulfillment, you can find that, it, that final liberation and oneness with the infinite through any tradition, or even if you're not a, a religious person, right, but you, 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 know, you sort of work through it uh, in a rational way. Um, the founder of, uh, I mentioned Swami Vivekananda, who started the Vedanta Society, his teacher was named Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna, uh, lived in the 19th century. And one of the things that's really remarkable about his life is that he practiced multiple religions until in each one of them, he had this realization experience, very powerful, very profound spiritual experiences that he had, starting with 
the tradition of he he was a priest of the goddess Kali uh, at a temple near Calcutta, and he he prayed and prayed and earnestly devoted himself to to Kali until he had a vision, and he saw waves of infinite light and love flowing over him, and for days afterward he he, he said this was the true form of the goddess, and he saw saw her everywhere and in everything. And then he, uh, he said, okay, I've experienced the infinite that way. Now I want to experience another aspect of the infinite. So he practiced different Hindu paths as well as Christianity and Islam. And in each of them, he had this realization experience. He had a vision of Jesus um, after his practice of, of Christianity. And so what, what we believe in the Vedanta Society is that he empirically demonstrated that it's possible to reach God through many different paths. And uh, you don't even have to use the word God if you don't want to, right? The infinite, you know, the, 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 the consciousness of the universe, however we want to refer to that. And so uh, I, I like Vedanta. I'm drawn to it because it sort of enables one to pull all of this together in, in a way that I find very logical and compelling. But that's me. Someone else might find Buddhism more appealing. Someone else might find Christianity more appealing. Someone find, might find Islam uh, more appealing or existentialism more appealing. And I think these are all vantage points from which we can uh, advance to the highest knowledge. So I would not want to be seen as just sort of exclusively promoting one mm -hmm. thing. And in fact, I tell my students uh, at the start of each semester, I say, okay, you're taking a religious studies course. Some of you are probably nervous. Does this mean it's, is it like Sunday school or, you know, am I going to be preaching at you? And I say, uh, it's against my religion to try to convert you to my religion. So uh, that, uh, that makes everyone sort of calm down very quickly. And uh, what, I, what I really love is being able to draw from many traditions, many perspectives. So I guess that's, that's something else. That would be my little soapbox, I would well, say. Well, thank you for sharing that. And that's a really educated <laughs> view, taking you know, the best pieces from all um, religions, is thinking outside of the box and being curious. It's, it's the only way to be. I, th I, think, I really think so. In fact, I, I just thought of one more thing I'd like to share if we have time. Mm -hmm. um, so I mentioned my father took his own life uh, when I was 12. This was as a consequence of injuries that he had suffered and just how much that it had affected him. Um, the evening, it was uh, June 28th, 1981. And so I was, I was 12 years old then. It was about six o'clock in the evening. We just had our evening meal and I went to go play at a friend's house. And I just, I wasn't thinking anything. I just spontaneously said, I love you, dad. And he said, I love you too, son. And I left and I went to play at my friend's house. I came back about 8.30, two and a half hours later, and he had died in that time. Mm -hmm. And I'm always grateful that the last words I spoke to him were, were loving, right? We, we said, I love you to each other. It, you know, what if I'd been angry with him? What if we'd had an argument about something? I slammed the door or even told him I hated him or something like that, and then never saw him again, right? That would just, you know, that would, that would have destroyed me. Yeah. And so... Um, in the Dharmapada, in the Buddhist scriptures, there's a saying that uh, one who is mindful of, for one who is mindful of death, there is no hatred or enmity. And I remember for a long time thinking, what's the connection between death and hatred? And then I realized, yeah, if you're mindful, if you know that each moment could be the last, you know, that every interaction with you have with a person could be the last. Yes, we believe in rebirth and maybe we will all meet again in some other form, but we won't remember right this that this moment is unique and precious and what if this is the last moment so i really strive to end all my interactions with people in a in a pleasant way uh as much as possible 
And again, it's hard with some people. It's just they don't let you do that. Uh, but I find that's very rare. Most people want to get along. Mm. What, a, what a wonderful message to end the show on. <laughs> it really well, is. So. Uh, thank you. Dr. Jeffrey Long, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. It's been so insightful and I can't wait to re-listen to the show. Very kind of you for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. It was very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.